Talk Live. It's Reigns and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network, and it's deja vu all over again this week. Another week, another indictment for former President Trump. Another week, another white grievance country western song goes viral. General Michael Flynn blames Jewish mothers for their children dying at Auschwitz. Moms for Liberty campaign to restrict sex education while appeals court imposes restrictions on abortion pill. That's a match made in heaven or no. <laughs> Arkansas to end AP black history courses just for a little cherry on top of the week's events. I'm Henry Raines. I'm Mark Edge. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> we are Raines and Edge. Mark, it's been a week since we last. It has. And, and the world keeps spinning. Uh, how, how's and it will. Is your world going well? Is the electricity, electrons flowing? Is the indoor plumbing pumping? Uh, how's everything? It, you know, there's always challenges uh, here on a remote uh, island, um, you know, so, but it's beautiful and I can't complain. That's good because it wouldn't do you any good. It wouldn't do any good. And just make people. You don't like it in someplace else. Yes. You know, actually, it's a couple of the topics here. Once we get down the list a little bit, you're, you're actually the father of a teenager. I am. This education stuff plays right into your bailiwick for words that aren't used anymore. And I actually... I'm not sure it's a strong suit, but it's certainly something I have to think about. Yes, and I've found that since we've been talking these last several weeks, when did we start this? 2019? Something like that? Um, Been doing it a while, it seems like, that my cultural references are going older and more obscure. When really, I'm the the more culturally younger of the two of us. (laughs) That's probably true. Yes, sir. More in touch. True. I'm remote. (laughs) Well, so anyway, last week we were talking about Jason Aldean. And don't don't try this in a small town. Or or try this in a small town. That's what he wanted you to do. He didn't want you to not try this in a small town. Try this in a small town. And I, I meant to look up. His small town, Macon, Georgia, and that whole county up there. And I don't, but I, I don't, I don't think Macon is all that small. Now, Macon's a good sized city. Interestingly, Free Talk Live started on a radio station called 1059 WYNF. And shortly after its uh, inception, the call letters of that station switched from 1059 WYNF to 1059 WSRQ, FM. Because call letters, you can have the same call letters on both FM and the AM dial in in the U.S. Uh, I don't know about other countries. But we gave up the famous WYNF call letters, which had previously been at 95.1, I think. Yeah, I I was recollecting there. Those call letters at about that time would have been, say, 2003, kind of languished for about a year, and then they were picked up by a station in Macon, Georgia. So 
I always think of that. Whenever I hear Macon, Georgia, I always think of WYNF. There's currently, to my knowledge, a station in Macon, Georgia called WYNF on the FM dial. Try picking up our call letters in a small town. <laughs> oh, I've, I've got a totally unrelated anecdote, but it has to do with small towns and small town radio. So back when I was doing the, the morning drive at WWPR here in south side of Tampa Bay, there was a gentleman that came That's on. That's where you are. I'm in Honduras. Right. I'm on a roll here. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know anything about the Honduran AM stations there. Uh, nor I. I'm sure they're wonderful. Uh, anyway, there was a gentleman that had retired and moved to Lakewood Ranch, and he had sold, uh, I believe, four Illinois stations to, it might have been Clear Channel. It was, it was, yeah, because they, they became iHeartMedia. It was the behemoth of radio. Anyway, one of his stations uh, was an AM station in Danville, Illinois. And Danville, Illinois was a small town, but it was famous for a couple people. The Van Dyke brothers, Jerry and Dick Van Dyke, Dick being the oh, okay. famous of the two, but, but Jerry Van Dyke, people knew him. He, got a, he had a TV show, My Mother the Car. And Dick Van Dyke, of course, uh, sang with penguins on the Mary Poppins movie. And That's right. To, to sleep in the twin bed with uh, Mary Tyler Moore on the sitcom. But the other famous person, I guess, it, I guess it was mainly famous actors that came out of Danville, Illinois, was Gene Hackman. Really? I didn't know Gene and, Hackman came out yeah, of Danville. And there was an event where Gene Hackman came back to Danville, Illinois... And this gentleman, who was, of course, living there with his stations at that time, got to host an event that was broadcast on his station and emceed, and, and they covered it. All. It was a big deal for Danville. I mean, mm -hmm. all, the, all the ancillary auto part manufacturers and stuff that had been there had died by that, that time. It was a, a decaying uh, little town in the Midwest that used to be part of the industrial belt of the United States, and Gene Hackman was there telling all the assembled people that had come to see the, the local boy done good, and he goes, and it's been so wonderful here being with all of you and being with, you're like family to me, and I just want to say, I'm coming back, and we're rebuilding this town, and we're going to, whatever he said he was going to do, build a mall, build a factory, start a theater. Bring a movie here. Whatever he said, it was it went over the crowd. The crowd's cheering. The sunshine and the rainbows popped up as he was talking there in Danville, Illinois, with the good news. And you know, the, they wrapped up. The applause happened. And as he, as Gene Hackman went off the podium, the owner of the station said, "Are you really going to do that?" And he said, "Hell no." <laughs> <laughs> Danville still languished, although I think it's had a little bit of a resurgence now, as a lot of stuff in the Midwest have. Well, it's a it's a funny story, but uh, you know, not a real surprise. Um, I mean, you know, it's many of these towns in the Rust Belt. You know, they were they were big factory towns at one point, and then you know the factories went elsewhere, and well, now it's uh, just the just the 
the government taxes is all they got left. Well, and if you refer back to our, our stories last week, the reindustrialization of America is happening, and they have lots to look forward to. Just like that Gene Hackman uh, mall, with just the like movie that movie theater will be coming soon. <laughs> it's coming, America! It's yeah. coming! I promise. Dan Maybe Billy next is. week. Uh, it's, it's coming back. All right. Well. I don't know how we got sidetracked on that. We talked about Jason Aldean, and we talked about try that in a small town. That's how we got there, Mark, and yeah. that's how we we ate up eight eight minutes of this segment. And we're still going to get to this <laughs> viral country music sensation, <sighs> Oliver Anthony. Okay, heard the name before. I. I know that uh, this week, not since before this week. In, in fact, I want to. Uh, we're doing this on the fly, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Oliver Anthony, because when I first heard of this, just two days ago or so, um, and, and I wanted to see what it was all the fuss about, and I need to. You got to bear with me. I'm, I I, sh- I should have looked this up. But what I, I want to see how many downloads he has, because when I first looked at this uh, on YouTube, he had 9 million uh, downloads or, or, or listened to of all right. this. And you're probably going to get a little echo here if I don't hit this mute fast enough. But I want to see what he's up to now. He's had 9 million, and then he had 12 million. And then he had 13 million. And now it's pulling up and it's trying. Oh, it's not going to tell me. I must have another minute. He's not, I don't want to hear what you have to say about this. Devin Gibson here, giving me the bait and switch on this. But Devin Gibson, which is interesting but in itself, has gotten 110,000 views on YouTube just talking about Oliver Anthony. Right. Which is obviously what I was hoping for our downloads, that just the the sound of his voice coming out of my lips would draw mm-hmm. us hundreds of thousands of, <laughs> of views and downloads. But no, that's not happening. 18 million. He's got his moment in the sun, and I can only support that. Oliver Anthony has 18 million views for this little song of his that you were about to give you a little excerpt, a little taste of, just a smidgen, because we want to stay right with all the copyright laws and things like that. But he is a newsworthy item now. And the song is called Rich Men North of Richmond, which is, is I don't know, it's not alliteration. But it's a little tongue twister. Yeah, Rich Men North of Richmond. It's It's got a rhythm to it. And... It's he. Although Oliver Anthony lives in Farmville, Maryland, but uh-huh. it's got this whole populist outrage that seems to be popular in country western music. And what's different now than the the stuff that has happened over time is that like the we, we you have to go back re listen to all of us all of our episodes so you don't miss out on any of the fine points. But if you went back and listened. When we looked at a little bit of the history of patriotism on country music from the last decades, like Oki from Skokie and Toby Keys, that was from Merle Haggard, 
Toby Keith, courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue. And there's we 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 didn't put it up there, but we could probably go to Lee Gr- Greenwood, proud to be an American, the whole thing. Yep. All right. Well, uh, Anthony, if you're going to write a patriotic song, you probably should do do it in the country western genre. Right. Probably don't want to do it. Hey, are there are there patriotic uh, urban contemporary songs? I can't think of a single one. As a matter of fact, it seems to be hip to hate on uh, America uh, for, from the urban standpoint. Hmm. All right. Well, here's how it starts out. Mark, I think you may have heard it. This would be uh, clip A from Rich Men that I sent you. Rich, rich Men, not Rich Mund. Because I was abbreviating it for, for our clip, purpose of our clips. But let's get with it. I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for bullshit. So I can sit out here and waste my life away, drag back home and drown my troubles away. It's a damn shame what the world's gotten to for people like me. People like you wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is. Oh, it is living in the new world. Hi, I, I actually had to do a little bit of editing on that because it wasn't ready for uh, broadcast play. Had to protect the uh, the listeners' ears a little bit from hearing the sh word. Um, that yes. Was well, in there. Uh, the first time I listened to this on my computer with my headphones, I couldn't even understand what was being said. The accent's so strong, and the audio on the clip that I was listening to was so bad. Uh, now, I could understand yours, um, it's cleaned up or whatever, but I just, you know, when I was hearing this on social media, I just wasn't understanding it at all. I was like, right, God, well, I understand the guy. It, it's not Appalachia, but it's the Piedmont Mountains and the Blue Ridge Mountain area where Farmville, Virginia is. I don't know why they said okay. Piedmont. Piedmont, isn't that... Where is Piedmont Mountains? Isn't that more Pennsylvania? I don't know the answer. Because, anyway, I'm familiar with the Virginia. That's that's the Blue Ridge up there. I don't know why. Um, and another article that I didn't bother to send you because it was lengthy and it was sort of like an inside baseball kind of thing. But uh, it was complaining about how people are assigning him to Appalachia. And it's really... Virginia, but the point being is that he's in Virginia. Richmond is is a northern part of Virginia to him, and Washington D.C. would be north of that. So, and if you listen to that, uh, one other thing you might notice is it's only him playing the guitar. So, eat your heart out, Jason Aldean. He didn't have to pay for the setting in front of the courthouse where the lynching happened. He didn't have to pay <laughs> the production company to do that. He didn't have to yep. pay the accompanying musicians. He's just got a couple dogs laying around him, and whoever was holding the camera and shooting him, and uh, he probably already owned the microphones and stuff. Yeah, this is a singer's dream, uh, to be able to just put a bit up on social media, and it just takes off. And I think that's because his grievances, as you call them, um, are so, they resound so strongly with America. They're universal grievances. It's not white, it's not black, it's not... Uh, Hispanic or Asian. I mean, anybody can relate to that. I, I would agree that they are universal grievances. But, but what am uh, I bitching about? Well, Indeed. What are you bitching about, Henry? Yes, I'm bitching about 
you can't just stick with that. You have to go and reach in for the, the far right wing tropes, not quite as far as Jason Aldean. He doesn't, he's Are not, we going to go hunting in the bushes for racists? What? Pardon me? Are we going to go hunting in the bushes for racists? I'm not, no, I'm not, I'm going for the far right conservative tropes. I'm okay. not going for racism on this one. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll, I'll leave, I'll, I'll, I will leave the racism on the courthouse steps where the lynching happened. <laughs> okay. So, but I, I, I'm going I'm to point out a couple words here before I play this little clip. So this is where it is. So the, the article that was the inside baseball of this whole music industry thing um, was, you, you know who uh, uh, John Rich is of... Big and Rich, you know, the country guy that, that has a lot of hit songs is um, oh. from, from that uh, duet group. And uh, he wants to produce an album for Oliver Anthony now. Uh, I guess he just spotted that talent or he spotted the 18 million downloads. One of those things. And yep. John Rich is also the one that won't have Bud Light so, sold at his concert if anymore. Okay. He, you know, because Bud Light had the the trans woman do a, I think it was just an internet spot. No, it wasn't even a real commercial, but, it, you know, that's got mileage out of that. So a lot of the same people that make their living uh, spinning outrage well, for right-wing websites got behind this early on and pushed the download. I, I think the song is strong enough. It would have had found its own legs, but... There's plenty of bandwagon on this, and this is. Well, I'd like to address the the uh, the Bud Light one first. Um, I, as far as that goes, it's Bud Light's just a beverage, right? It it isn't a country beverage, it isn't an urban beverage, it isn't a trans beverage. It's a beverage, um, and so. But what seems to be the case is is that different demographics, different psychographics, drink different beverages. So my statement would be not that it's good, bad, or indifferent, but that there was a breathtaking marketing flaw with um, sponsoring NASCAR and trans influencers, right? Like whoever thought that was a good idea. This is Budweiser, Anheuser-Busch, this, uh, I can't, InBev, I believe is what the uh, company is called now. This is InBev. They must have a hundred different beers, probably not a hundred different light beers, but a hundred different beers in total. They could have sent any beer over there to that uh, trans woman and uh, given her whatever it is that they wanted to give her. You know, and I saw a picture, her picture on a can or whatever the situation is. Figure it out. This can't be that difficult because this was... They, they deserve it not from the standpoint that, oh, they were in bed with the trans woman. And you know what that's like. Uh, yeah, that's and, uh, <laughs> turn of the phrase. <laughs> I'm sure it sounded great, like a great idea on the Zoom meeting. But I don't think they even talked about it. I think this uh, uh, deputy to the assistant. No, they, they, they talked about how they wanted. Okay, so Bud Light's been around for decades. Yeah, sure. You know, it, it's got probably was rolled along, plateaued at a certain level of sales, maybe even trending down a little bit because 
I think Corona has uh, been the, you know, the, the major uh, one that's taken uh, market share away. Uh, and e even some of the throwbacks like Pabst Blue Ribbon over the last few years have probably gained market share back. But they thought, well, we can we can appeal to those demographics that haven't been coming on this because they were just they were just targeting it on the Internet. I don't. I'm pretty sure it was not a regular 30 second commercial you, that no, you're going to see. I don't on even the know the 30 second chain. commercials happen anymore. But well, yes, they do, and there's lots of beer commercials on pro sports on sports in places like that. Actually, you know, there's more beer commercials than lots of things all across what remains of broadcast television. Yeah, but the. It definitely was a bad marketing move, but not so much the bad marketing move to target and try and get those, although that was a weak part, weak link too, was not knowing in this current environment where, you, you know, where you're calling teachers groomers, where you're talking about them indoctrinating children, the teachers I'm saying, that if you put a trans woman on a Bud Light commercial, you're like setting that up for, to be a target from again the outrage industry, the cottage, not the cottage industry, bigger than a cottage industry, the outrage well, industrial. To complex. be clear, the outrage industry goes both directions. The, 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 right, the outrage industrial complex works on both sides, right? Yeah, like it's not just a right thing. One. Yeah, we are talking about this one. We're talking about the right, righty one, and I say that in, in the you know, next it, segment, I will, I will listen to your outrage industrial complex and on the other side too but in the the time that we have left we're not even going to get to hear the tropes until after the break but that's just the way we are because we're in depth on reins and edge we're we're insightful and incisive both and you're going to get all that and a lot more you're going to hear about obesity you're going to hear about miners and miners and none of them work in a coal mine or do anything like that, you're going to get all the inferences with the next clip from Oliver Anthony on Reigns and Edge on the other side of these messages. Yep, we still do email. Drop your email address in the entry box at freetalklive.com and you'll be kept in the loop with Free Talk Live. Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Rising fees have made Bitcoin useless for purchases, but Dash continues to have fees less than one cent per transaction and has implemented really cool features to ensure it's undefeated as the most useful cryptocurrency in the marketplace. From a technical standpoint, Dash transactions are irreversible and its network is protected from 51% attacks by their Chainlocks technology. There's no need to wait for a confirmation before considering a Dash transaction complete, so it's great for merchants. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Big thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash.org.
It's Deja Vu all over again week here on Reigns and Edge, where we revisit and recall things that seems like it was just last week we were talking about. And it also seems like just last week or the week before that we were talking about how if you're an outraged country and Western uh, music star, you might get a little more mileage on your career if you get outraged and get picked up as a iconic story for right-wing pundits and people in the outrage industrial complex as we finished talking about there. We were talking about Oliver Anthony. He has the now, well, in the last segment, he had 18 million downloads of rich men north of Richmond. But by now, a half hour later, he may have 19 million or something like that. But we won't we won't quibble about that right now. What I had been saying was that you have to check some boxes off if you want to be a successful white grievance, outraged country music, West country western music star. And he does this in this next clip. Listen for the minors who aren't minors. Listen for obesity or just obese, and listen for fudge rounds. This is going back to the well, my turn of the phrase, not his, on the old tropes of outrage. And let's hear this one. I wish politicians would look out for miners, and not just miners on an island somewhere. Lord, we got folks in the street, ain't got nothing to heat, and the whole beast milk and welfare. God, if you're five foot three and you're 300 pounds, taxes ought not to pay for your bags of fudge rounds. Young men are putting themselves six feet in the ground because all this damn country does is keep on kicking them down. Lord, it's a damn shame what the world's gotten to for people like me, people like you. Wish I could just wake up and it not be true. It's a damn shame, Mark. Well, I mean, so let, let he's tuning into something let, let me that just, we've talked let, about. Lyrics. Go ahead. Because I, I don't think anybody, I, everybody that's listening would have heard what was, he was talking about there. So okay. it said, so you, in the first part we, that we talked, it was about selling your soul, working all day, uh, and that the rich men north of Richmond, Lord knows all they want to have is total control, want to know what you think, want to know what you do. I'm sorry, I could be a country singer, maybe. And they don't think you know, but I know that you do, because your dollar ain't the SH word, and it's taxed to no end because of rich men north of Richmond. Okay, most people can get on board with that one. So later on, he, he goes to this with it. I wish politicians would look out for miners and not just miners on an island somewhere. All right. Well, if, and I don't know what that means. He's referring to Epstein and the island where he would fly in the the billionaires. Mine ore. Okay, so it's the difference between a, a person who mines ore and a, and a people under the age of eighteen. Um, and frankly, they don't even uh, care about them either. I mean, right. And then, so that's you're, you're still starting in the most people are going to get behind you if you're upset about Epstein. It's a little bit 
old now that he's dead and gone, and not much is going to happen on that case. But it's okay. That's, well, the that's question outrage. is if you if what? you think that the government's actually going to investigate itself on the Epstein thing. Well, plus, it's also playing into the whole QAnon uh, conspiracy that they're going to... They're, they're well, to some extent, but the QAnon conspiracy just scratches the surface. What? The, I mean, it just scratches the surface on it. I mean, do you, look, somebody was flying around on that plane of Epstein's, the uh, Lolita no, My point Express. is that you're starting to move your goal, for, goal the goalpost from everybody who's outraged about how the, the system is stacked and rigged to now you're going to the people that are outraged, still are outraged about Epstein, which tends to be the QAnon conspiracists or people. No, it doesn't. Look, America is pissed off about Epstein and they know that Bill Clinton was on that I plane. They know that. That's the point I'm saying. I'm not, that's what I'm saying is you're doing the dog whistle for the, that far right group that is talking about the child, like the sound of freedom and the, the things like that that are appealing to that marketplace. You're talking about Bud Light appealing to trans women. Well, this is, is blowing that. And then you go back to the good old trope about we got folks in the street, ain't nothing to eat, and the obese milk and welfare. So you got to create the visual of some fat welfare queen or welfare king that is also 5'3", 300 pounds, and your taxes are paying to buy the bag of fudge rounds. Yeah. Which, well, I mean, don't you think Americans hate the idea that their EBT card is unregulated and that um, people who are um, on welfare with an EBT well, card... it is re regulated are, to some extent because you... They can't buy people. cigarettes, right? What? They can't buy cigarettes with it, right? Well, no, and they can't buy alcohol unless you've got a, uh, a dishonest store owner that's willing to try and run a scam against the government and the taxpayers. But if you're, and if you go, well, I mean, in, if you go behind our, our main grocery store down here is Publix, some other places it's Kroger. But you can see when people go in line in front of you and they hit some food item that doesn't qualify, it gets pulled out. But the point is, you're not, you're not poor, you're not overworked because of some other poor person. The taxes that are going for EBT are a tiny fraction of the federal budget, but it's about dividing and what started as the overall outrage against the way the system works against working people is now getting sliced and diced in this song so that he can get the uh, people that are the pundits and all to help promote the song, and make it a cause celeb for their part of the outrage industrial complex. Well, I don't disagree with the, your assessment as far as the marketing goes, but I would say that um, there are people who are in, say, the, um, the second or fourth, whatever you would call it, uh, quintile, what we would call um, working class or lower middle class, uh, that one, that are pretty upset that they live marginally better than people who are in the lower class who do, to their mind, nothing. What's the and I think EBT that this grievance benefit? is... What's this? What's the average EBT benefit? How much per month do you I imagine to, it's, to spend on EBT? I don't have an answer for that, and I imagine it's uh, probably somewhere in the uh, neighborhood of the low hundreds of dollars per month. Hundreds? 
So, Low hundreds. I bet we can find an answer on the fly. I didn't know I would need this, but let's see. So um, when those people see somebody not working at all versus their 40, 50 hours a week, and that person has, to their mind, um, you know, <laughs> almost as good as good a life, that doesn't feel good. And it's kind of this old story. Let me tell you about, let me tell you about this science experiment. Um, they used macaque monkeys. They gave a good reward, uh, which was the grape, and a less good reward, which was cucumber. And they would reward the monkeys for doing tasks. And if they had one monkey do a task, that was fine. If they had two monkeys do tasks and reward them, um, you know, and there was something in between them, that was fine. But if they removed the thing in between, and, uh, oh, and they had two monkeys do tasks, and they gave them both the same reward, everything was fine. But if you gave consistently one monkey the grape and the other monkey the uh, cucumber, the cucumber monkey would lose his little monkey mind and begin hurt, trying to hurt everybody because he felt like his reward sucked and the other reward was better. Now, you can make your uh, assessment. It doesn't make a difference. But if you take one group and you reward them and you take another group and their reward is not as good, then you're going to have problems. And that's what the complaint is. And I think the complaint is valid. If I had to pick between working my ass off um, day in and day out and getting... Uh, and, and ending up in a middle, lower middle class uh, quintile versus getting a government check regularly and being in the lower class uh, quintile, I think I might consider being in the lowest quintile. And at least I don't have to work. Really? So Why not? Because I don't think you know how low that threshold is. I was so in prison for eight and a half years I worked, I earned $75 per month there. I would consider myself to have existed for eight years in the lowest uh, socioeconomic class in America. So I think I do. Uh, I don't think you were getting EBT SNAP benefits there. No, I just got a free meal three times a day. Room and board, too. Uh, the, in Florida, three million people get SNAP benefits, which is like the EBT. Um, yeah. And that's $153 per person per month. So okay. now, what's the, the threshold for the highest income level for SNAP payments? For well, a SNAP payments for children, isn't it? I'm going to say, I'm, let's, let's do household size of four, because one is less than four, and um, 200% of the um, poverty level that they go by on this uh, is four thousand six hundred dollars. You have to have your household has to be making four thousand six hundred dollars or less to qualify for the SNAP benefits. Okay. Uh, I, I get I have another thing open here. That's per year. Yes, mm -hmm. forty six hundred. Um, if you have eight people, you can qualify. If you're if you're one of the states that allow 200% of the threshold, you can have $7,700 of income. So, okay. one person, the one person that's eating the fudge rounds there, that five foot three, three hundred pounder, 
at the most generous state level can make $2,200 of earned income and still get the SNAP benefits. So the person that he's pointing the finger at has nothing to do with how the system is screwing you. Well, I would agree with that, that that um, assessment of welfare is accurate. I'm only saying that if you give one monkey um, one, you know, uh, a crappy reward and another monkey a better reward that you're going to have a bad result. When in fact, it's the parasites themselves, the politicians, the rich men north of Richmond, which he uh, indicts here uh, quite well. He, um, It's those parasites that are in fact skimming off all the money that they take in in tax and that kind of thing. When you're poor, paying any tax sucks. And they do. They pay a lot. So you, you want to help poor people cut tax, cut their taxes. So, so I still I don't see where you come off on him uh, trying to point the finger in this song at some obese poor person. I think it's a very human thing to do. That I think that this is I think that the politicians are excellent at dividing us, and I don't think that any one group is um, guilty any more than um, you know a group of. Well, you pick your ethnic group or your uh, your ethnic and socioeconomic group blaming another ethnic and socioeconomic group um, for their problems. It's all the rich men north of Richmond. Right, which I agreed with you on the first part of the song. And I'm, that I'm saying, so why did he have to try and play into... To show the division. What? To show the division. No, I have one that tells shows the division much better... Jonathan Mann, who has written a song a day for years and years. That Dolly had, Parton used to do that. Pardon me? Dolly Parton used to do that. She did? Yeah, she claimed that. They should, maybe they should do a duet together. <laughs> a whole medley. Like a, like a 550 song medley of, that they have all written together. Well, Jonathan Mann wrote his response. I'm not going to play the whole thing for you. I'm just going to play the relevant part and to sort of tie this up in a bow. Although, Mark, you're welcome to extend the, the discussion on the other side of this. But um, Jonathan Mann's song, Fat People on Welfare. Fat people on welfare Not your enemy there, but for fortune, oh, go you all me. You diagnose yourself as a very old soul, yeah, but you haven't quite grasped the basics yet of solidarity, no. You see, the powers that you rail against Have only one hope to survive And I hear it in the words you sing It's divide, 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 divide Divide, divide Fat people on welfare is a non sequitur to the rest of your song it's how we can can be sure 
that your faux populist message has been astroturfed to number one by the same people that you rail against. That's how business is done. It's a Fox News talking point, sung heartfelt and with pride. But the language of the elite comes creeping. Divide, divide, divide. Fat people on welfare. Two ends in man, by the way, Jonathan Mann. He's out there on YouTube. And I think he was up to almost 450 downloads with this when I recorded it the other day. Well, I think that it's uh, fine, and I'd like to hear his, uh, his his assessment. I think that uh, the songs are a great way to to reach people, but frankly, it's so difficult to market these things. Um, this uh, this Richmond song that we're talking about here is uh, it's it's a one in a million. It, so many of them are written, but all the best to everyone. the uh, The statement I would make regarding it is is that America is unique. Poor people in other countries. Um, are not fat. Poor people in America are. And you can see it. So what's the explanation? You really want me to, to go down that road? I, I don't mind yeah, talking about it. Right? Okay. Let me back it up just a little bit. Most everybody listening to us has been in a convenience store. And, yep. Yep. And... Do they have convenience stores in Honduras like we have convenience stores? They call them pulperias. Um, they're usually not air-conditioned. Okay. So do they have a lot of fresh fruit and veggie, vegetables and things there? Nope. No, you and your uh, convenience stores? Pardon me? They have, sugar, they have sugary beverages, bags oh. of chips, and a few other household items that you might okay. need. Okay. So I imagine um, those... Items are supplied by, if not our U.S. familiar names of conglomerates, someone from Latin America is supplying those. If you walk into your U.S. convenience store and you ignore the little basket of bananas by the cash register. Yeah, just that. Yeah. Maybe a couple apples over there in the refrigerated uh, section and the pre- uh, packaged sandwiches that are sealed up there by the microwave. Um, what in that store is not a product, a genre of products that is addictive? You have tobacco, you have beer, wine, you have lottery, which is you know Sugary. gambling addiction. Sugar's uh, addicted that one, but uh, <laughs> you have salty snacks. And you have... I wouldn't go so far as addictive when it comes to salty, but all right. Okay. We can split the hairs. It's certainly you can't eat just one is, is a pretty uh, bold statement, though. There right? you go. We'll give you... And then the sugary snacks, whether they be the soda or the fruit drinks or the candy. and But the thing that's in common between alcohol and those snacks is they both have a sugar in them. And the sugar in the uh, the candy bars and the uh, sugar drinks, the Cokes, the, you know, you could go with the diet drinks and then you just sip the neurotoxins down, and, <laughs> which is a different problem. And, you know, you may, you may have the DNA that doesn't really make much difference to you then. Um, 
but you have that same dopamine response. You just don't get intoxicated off the, the Coke or the Hershey bar. You get a little rush of feel goodness, but that's it. So yeah, the, that has been refined over decades. But really, if you think of a person, let's not go five, three, 300 pounds, but let's say uh, five, 10, 250 to 300 pounds. That was an unusually obese person when I was growing up. Yeah. And to find someone over 300 pounds, even when I was in college at, at the University of Florida, which would put, let's say around 1980, there was a gentleman that used to come in the comic book store that, um, he was a musician that used to play at lo local gigs around there, but he was, he seemed really big at the time. And he even used to joke that he, he hadn't seen his penis in years, uh, without a mirror. And, well, I thought that was, gets the picture to you. And it's a funny joke. It, it, well, and it was, Funny when he said it. I don't know how funny he really thought it was. Uh, yeah. And he passed away early, but um, he lived a little a while longer than that. But if you went to your local Walmart today, you would probably, if you stayed there a half hour, I'm pretty sure you'd find about 30 people past you who were bigger than that guy was. Some of them Sounds would accurate. be riding in the, the motorized shopping cart. Um, some of them would be getting their way around. And there's a whole um, a series of uh, anti-obesity drugs now that are coming out of the, the genre of drugs for, that have uh, been successful against diabetes. Uh, Wagovi, Manjuro, and uh, I, I will openly admit that uh, I've lost 50 pounds in the last nine months. Uh, on Manjuro. And it's, I used to tell my doctor, I used to tell like the personal trainer, I said, I'm, I'm working out all the time. I, I, I've cut back my sugary snacks to maybe like a couple cookies a day. And I'm, I'm, I'm playing pickleball three hours a, a day and going to the gym. Yeah. Why am I not losing weight? Yeah. And, and I said, I think I, I think my body metabolism has changed. And I looked up some uh, things, you know, where your insulin syndrome is, you're not diabetic, but it's not metabolizing things the way it should. And these, these drugs work. I've been losing a steady um, five to eight pounds a month for nine months. And it worked other people. It, it's worked for them. So really, we're getting to the point where uh, through these medicines, you could probably eliminate obesity for a huge percentage of people, well over half. I would say probably close to 90%, but that's just me talking. And that would be a different way. It sure would. And uh, all we need now is for these medicines to stay out for long enough that they become uh, cheap enough to... Uh, you know, turn them into generics and that kind of thing, and then people yeah. will be in pretty good shape, right? Right now, they're nominally around $1,200 a month. Luckily, my insurance uh, covers them. It's one of the first insurances. Medicare won't cover them. 
And maybe on the other side of the message, we'll just quickly give like maybe as a public service announcement uh, for people uh, some information that they can talk to their doctors about it. Uh, because I've, I've seen a lot of people be helped with that. Uh, Mark, in the last 10, 20 seconds, you got anything else on uh, Anthony Oliver and his song? Or we'll just come back and help uh, get America healthy again. I just couldn't understand him, <laughs> mostly. Huh. All right. Maha, make America healthy again on Rain's <laughs> Indeed. Death. On Free Talk Live, we're bringing people to the ideas of liberty every day. From wrestling superstars like Glenn Jacobs. You guys really are having an impact, I believe. Like I said, uh, a lot of where I am now is due to listening to Free Talk Live. You changed my mind on some very important issues years ago. To random people tuning in on the radio. I was kind of stuck in the left-right paradigm. I heard your show by chance on a Saturday night. From there, I went on joined the Free State Project and become an amplifier. So, I mean, that's really the reason why I amp is uh, because I know that if it wasn't for you guys being on as many stations as you are, I never would have found the ideas of liberty. You can help more people hear the message of liberty by joining Free Talk Live's AMPS program on Patreon for as little as $5 a month. And you'll get access to special perks. Visit amps.freetalklive.com, amps.freetalklive.com. Free Talk Live. It's Rains and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. I'm Henry Rains. I'm Mark Edge. I can vouch for that. I'm seeing him just just like he did on the video chat moments ago when we were talking, uh, wrapping up about uh, obesity and convenience stores and addictive substances. And I, I was making the point about the new class of drugs that are coming out um, came from the treatment for diabetes. So they've been on the market for a few years and they've been used uh, successfully against diabetes. Seems to be minimal side effects. Uh, some of the brand names are Ozempic, Wagovi, Manjuro is the, the newest one of the bunch. Uh, that's the one from Eli Lilly. And so anyway, th- these, and I stated that uh, I had lost 50 pounds on Manjuro over about a nine month period of time. Uh, they are, uh, although they, they are successful for weight loss, they've not been approved by Medicare for weight loss. Uh, I'm on a Medicare Advantage program and luckily, they do have a benefit uh, for Majuro, and it uh, starts out like at a $45 a month copay, and then after about four months, you wind up starting to pay 20% of the cost of the, the medicine. Most of these medicines uh, are nominally priced at about 1100 to 1200 a month, so they're very, um, as I said, nominally priced, because in American healthcare, nobody gets the same price for anything. Uh, it's, there's always a, a trade-off somewhere or another. And in fact, some of these drugs are being offered uh, through compounding pharmacies. So it's still going to oh, cost really? someone around $250 to $300 if they don't have insurance that covers it. Uh, but it's out there. So it's starting to be made available. And I would think that once insurance companies and Medicare 
realizes the, the savings that can be made by uh, not just treating diabetes, but all of the ancillary things that happen with obesity, high blood right. pressure, heart problems, uh, there's dietary problems, uh, just well, even CPAP machines for people with sleep apnea. Uh, all well, I think that that's, I, I think you're likely correct that that's true, but I, let's not discount the uh, incentives that insurance companies have. Insurance companies' incentives aren't that you live to a ripe old age or that you're particularly healthy. Insurance companies' incentives are that you're relatively healthy and then you die quickly. Their, their incentive is against well, you being well, hospitalized or needing a great their, deal of their, medical care. Their incentive is for you to be relatively healthy for a long period of time and then die quickly. Because well, more the, years the longer you can pay your payment. You collect more years, they collect money from you. Yeah, that, that may be true. But, I mean, at this point, with their collusion with the government in the form of Obamacare, insurance companies basically oh, have everybody. Great. Well, come on. I mean, that's not fascism? No. It's not fascism. It is okay. Obamacare is a privatization instead of having a third-party payer like traditional Medicare, which operates with about a 2% administration fee. The only way to get more coverage of the American population was to provide incentives for the insurance companies to be uh, incentivized to work with the government on insurance plans. But the, the Obamacare has created extra profit or more profit centers for the insurance companies, yes, and it's also increased coverage uh, by about 10% of the population uh, that didn't have coverage before. Not 10% of sure. the un uninsured, but about 10% more of the U population of the United States now is covered by insurance. Sure, people that assessed themselves as not needing insurance. What's wrong with that? Um, well, what's wrong with them assessing themselves? What's wrong with having more people covered and, and having it at an affordable uh, price for them? Well, uh, I don't know about affordable. I mean, prices have never been affordable uh, with insurance. They, I had health insurance before, and I attempted to get health insurance after, and there was a distinct price difference, and it was significantly higher afterwards. But nonetheless, that's not my point. My point is, is that... Um, insurance companies are working with the government. They have to cover everybody now. And that is, you know, that changes their incentives. Whereas before it was those people that felt they needed insurance. Now it's everybody has they, to have it. They can't disqualify people for pre-existing conditions, but there is a tiered system of assessing charges to those people. I'm sure. I wouldn't think that anybody is uh, getting it. You know, that so what I wouldn't is, think that they were all the same. What's wrong with having a, a insurance more affordable for people? It obviously is. I I formed a norm a nonprofit with a hospital a former hospital administrator and a local attorney to help the people that are caught at the bottom end of, of the income scale from like up to a two hundred percent of poverty level to to buy them insurance because it was that affordable. And we, we wound up buying insurance for people that came up with cancer and other things. It costs about $100 a month for people to be insured. Now, that's, that's the, through the government program, right, that, that was instituted within Obamacare, right? 
Through the healthcare exchanges, yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, what I would say is, is that when we would call what the government would normally call a cartel, it seems to be a great solution now when it's healthcare. Um, what they would normally call a monopoly, monopolistic behavior, well, they are solution? using as a solution. What was your solution? Well, I like the uh, what they call the impossible solution. And a solution that is so difficult to implement now that the government has got its hands in. Because we were just going step by step into socialized medicine. Oh, we gotta cover this group, we gotta cover that group, this group votes a lot, so we gotta give them some more extra benefits and all that sort of thing. Go ahead. What I would say is, is that there, if you look at things like, um, you know, plastic surgery, you look at the kind of medical care that doesn't currently get covered at all, it's relatively inexpensive. LASIK, um, you know, there's a variety of them. Really inexpensive? Yep. Comparatively. Comparative to other other medical care that is covered by um, insurance and governments. Once you get all this level of bureaucracy that's in there, then it changes everything dramatically. How much does LASIK cost? It's been a while, but I think it was $2,000 to be able to see. Is Medicare socialized medicine? Um, if you want to call Medicare. it social, yeah, Medicare is socialized medicine. Anything paid for by the government, single payer, yeah. Insurance works on a large pool of clients or insured. Voluntary socialization. Yep. The elderly into a large pool, and they are going to have a multitude of problems that you won't be covered by a private insurance company. How would you cover people over 65? It's not going to be a place where things get cheaper to take care of those people. When, when your uh, parent has medical problems, how are they going to be covered unless you include everyone in the pool that are paying into the pot that is going to pay for the health care? Um, it's been a little while since I've looked at the numbers, but the last time I looked on Medicare, people from Medicare were getting, uh, were paying about, I think it was 30 cents, three zero cents for every dollar. They paid in 30 cents and they're receiving uh, for every dollar that they received in care. So that's not a system that's particularly sustainable. Anything that the government runs is going to be a mess, and it's going to kick the can down the road, and it's going to make people like me pay for mistakes and decisions that people who are now over the age of 65 have chosen to make. I didn't eat that ring ding, and I didn't eat that ho-ho. I didn't smoke that pack of cigarettes, and I shouldn't have to pay for it. Well, way to create a straw man argument because you're listing all these things that are individual actions that do cause a detriment to your health, but there's all kinds of other things that are uh, environmental, that are the normal uh, contagions that people get, that are reasons that people have more problems as they age, and we have the ability to take care of them. And that's how insurance works. The money goes in over time, and yes, like Social Security, you should be getting more back out than you ever paid. You should be getting more health care benefits because the money that you paid in when you were 20 compounds over the 40 years before you become eligible for Medicare. But it doesn't. 
It, uh, Social Security is usually paid a, uh, pays out at about 1%, which is a terrible return. And here's another really great no, fact. Is that that's Social Security. That's, that's as I understand it. Hold on. One more thing. Um, is, is that things... Uh, so who lives longer, white people or black people? I, I believe you're going to find that uh, most the white people live longer. There's higher diabetic rates and... Other things within the, the black population. Men or women? Women tend to have a longer life expectancy. And uh, rich people or poor people? Uh, rich people tend to live longer. Right. So you need three black, uh, poor black men to uh, pay in to support every rich white woman on Social oh, Security. That, that's silly. It's not silly. It's the truth. It, no, Social Security is a, a lot uh, of people to pay in, and then the the risk is spread over everyone. So you want to slice and dice to make some point about some some group is subsidizing the other because they die early. Well, yep. that changes over time as healthcare becomes more available. With those those people have healthcare now because of the healthcare.gov exchanges that they're able to take care of themselves better. Do you think that um, the best choice was for the government to team up with uh, for insurance companies to provide health care to people, or do you think that there was a better system? I think uh, a Medicare for All system with the single payer was uh, a more efficient system if you're talking about dollar cost. And the fact is that along with the Affordable Care Act, there were reforms made that make the uh, health care coverage outcome-based as opposed to fee-for-service-based. And that's why you are getting more efficient use of your resources post-Affordable Care Act. So Obamacare was a poor solution for everybody? It was a better solution than what was existing. Medicare were included. Cost it runs on old people already had coverage. Fee. What? I missed what you said. Um, old people were already covered uh, under the Bush administration. Obama didn't come in and cover old people, right? The Obama didn't do anything. The Affordable Care Act All expanded right. coverage through the insurance company exchanges. And so 10% more people are covered of the general population. So if I don't have the number in front of me, if 70% of the population had insurance, including Medicare, 80% is. I think it's closer now to 90%. It's probably around 80% and it's around 90% now. All I'm saying is the United States healthcare system is the most inefficient healthcare system uh, from a dollar standpoint, uh, cost standpoint of, of anything in the world. Um, if you go around the world, you'll either see government just paying for people to get healthcare, in which case uh, that is, you know, the, it gives government all kinds of power I would choose not to give them, or you're going to see uh, countries where people just go to doctors and it costs, you know, $20 for a visit. And you get a prescription for whatever it is you need, and off you go. Right here in Honduras. I don't have insurance. I haven't had insurance for two, close to two decades. 
Because every time I go look at it, I'm like, this doesn't make sense for me and my family. As long so as I you just get hurt, or you don't have a, a catastrophe happen to you. A, a catastrophe would really suck. But here in Honduras, I'd just pay the bill because it would be relatively inexpensive. How much is uh, heart surgery there? Well, if I had to get heart surgery, I would probably fly back to the United States. Okay. But I would probably go to the Oklahoma City Medical uh, Clinic where they don't uh, do this government subsidy insurance thing. You just pay for the service. What do you think it would be? $50,000? Fifteen is the last I looked. 15000 for what kind of surgery? Heart surgery, last I looked. You mean like a stent? Open heart surgery? I, I don't know what I'm looking for I because I don't... <laughs> what's that? I... Look, I didn't get a chance to to uh, to research this. Yeah, you I did an interview up. with them. I did an interview with them five years ago, and um, you know I'm drawing from memory and and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I think the I think the free market has been shown itself to be excellent at providing low costs and high customer service, and I think that the government providing services is often quite the opposite. Senior healthcare is not a profitable area for insurance companies and the marketplace does not work for them. I think that there's a lot of stuff prescribed for old folks that is, is simply to drive up the cost of their bill. And, um, you know, I mean, you see it in end-of-life services and it doesn't seem to change a darn thing except making everybody uncomfortable, everybody suffer, and draining their pockets. You keep narrowing your definition after you put out your premise. Well, we didn't leave much time to talk about the latest indictment for President Trump. Well, we got to do that. We take a moment and thank the people at Dash for how they support the show. And we'll, uh, we'll try and set the table a little bit with President Trump to Get ready for the segment after that, where we will pry him apart, look deep inside. This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Rising fees have made Bitcoin useless for purchases, but Dash continues to have fees less than one cent per transaction and has implemented really cool features to ensure it is undefeated as the most useful cryptocurrency in the marketplace. From a technical standpoint, Dash transactions are irreversible and its network is protected from 51% attacks by their chain locks technology. There's no need to wait for a confirmation before considering a Dash transaction complete, so it's great for merchants. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Big thanks to Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash Dash.org. I lost my train of thought there for a second on the indictments. There's so many, it gets confusing. What, what are the four indictments that we're trying to be distinguish here for president? I've got from Reuters that there are, well, there's, there's criminal and civil stuff. Um, we've got the Georgia election tampering criminal probe, which is 
state level, one would seem. Uh, January 6th and the U.S. Capitol attack, sounds federal. Illegal retention of classified documents, also sounds federal. New York hush money criminal case. Uh, sexual abuse and defamation civil lawsuits. And New York Attorney General civil lawsuit. I can give you any explanations you need on any of those, but um, that's that's what's it's uh, the, the well. The latest one over. is the Georgia election interference one, which had the eighteen co-defendants, I believe, and okay. the one with the the federal one on the twenty twenty election has, I believe, five co-conspirators on that one. Uh, yeah, it says 19 defendants on the Georgia one with uh, 41 felony counts, and I don't see what uh, I don't see any co-defendants on the uh, January 6th, but that doesn't mean they're not there. Well, they they are. There's uh, four count indictment on the federal case in, in uh, Washington D.C. Uh, federal magistrate judge is overseeing that, and that's the one where he hasn't shown much restraint on his social media postings after he was warned about that. And they, <laughs> the judges said, if you keep doing that, I'm going to have to move up the date of the trial. And it looks like that may happen faster than they originally planned. I, I thought that it was um, one quote from Alan Dershowitz, who uh, I don't didn't get the impression that he was particularly pro-Trump or anything like that. But um, what he said was is that to his law students, he teaches them that if you use a conspiracy charge, um, a RICO Act or anything like that, that you can expect a more likelihood of conviction on the jury level, but less likely um, on appeal. So that it's more likely to be overturned on appeal and that sort of thing. Which also leads me to believe, to some extent, um, that it, I guess it doesn't clear from my mind the likelihood that these charges are being brought because Trump is running for president in order to keep him from doing so. Like, I don't know how much energy would be put into Trump in the absence of a uh, presidential run, I guess is what I'm trying to say. On the other side of these messages, let's look at what is alleged in a couple of these cases. I think I, I would, I would suggest we don't look at the hush money case and we don't look at the document cases, but let's compare the, uh, the one in the federal magistrate over the 2020 election and the Georgia interference case. And there's likely to be another, possibly Arizona. There could be multiple states that find that they want to bring charges based on the interference in the state elections. You're listening to Reigns and Edge. A friend of mine wrote a book, and, uh, well, I'm going to read an ad for it. Are you ready to explore a grand-breaking alternative to traditional state structures? Discover Entrepreneurial Communities, an alternative to the state by Calvin Duke, available now on Amazon in three formats. Don't miss the chance to explore this well-researched masterpiece, available in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook. As a matter of fact, a friend of mine read the audiobook, too. It's not the best audio, but... Hey, you know, it, it's easier than reading, and that's available on Amazon. Entrepreneurial Communities, an alternative to the state, is a must-read for those seeking a new perspective on governance. 
efficiency, and individual freedom. Grab your copy today and be part of the conversation that challenges the status quo and changes libertarianism forever. Entrepreneurial Communities, an alternative to the state, available on Amazon in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook. Get yours today and explore a future beyond convention. Entrepreneurial Communities, an alternative to the state by Calvin Duke. Rains and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. I'm Henry Rains. I'm Mark Edge. And we are back with all of our legal expertise here to <laughs> work through constitutional law, the actual law of the land, and figure out what they are charging President, former President Trump with. And you had mentioned that we had the case at the we, we'd already decided we aren't going to talk about the Stormy Daniels hush money case. We weren't going to talk about the Mar Lago document case. We're going to focus on. When, when did we decide all of this? I, I'm happy to talk about any of these things. Oh, please, Mark. <laughs> Two is plenty. That's a full place for a, a 20 some. I want to know why Trump, if presuming he did get a warning from the federal government, wanted to keep all these documents that he's got. Like, why not just turn them over? Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot about those things. Why is he moving them on planes and stuff? Well, there are a lot of explanations, Mark. You could say maybe he's just a sociopath. Maybe he's just a super narcissist that thought he could get away with it and whatever he wanted to do, he should be able to do. Maybe he's just used to getting his way all the time. Maybe you become president... And all your negative traits get enhanced. I don't know. But the other two cases we were talking about were the federal magistrate in Washington, D.C., as far as the events of January 6th. And that, I believe, is his indictment along with five co-conspirators. And then we have the Georgia election interference case, which is the most recent case, which is he and 18 other co-defendants. And so let me bring it back to you. Uh, I think it's a, a large conspiracy. I think there's a lot of evidence of that. But you raise the points that you want to raise. Well, um, as far as the January 6th thing goes, I, I don't know. I'm interested in what's going on. What I would say is that I've read recently this... Uh, this uh, what a conservative case for the indictment against Trump or whatever it was, and I found it interesting. The question at hand is, basically, Trump is charged with charges that would make him ineligible to hold the office of president if he were guilty of them. So, can a person run for the office that they can't hold. And this is what I don't know. From a legal, the Constitution is silent on this particular question. You know, the Constitution guaranteed a speedy trial, but nobody gets one anymore. There just aren't, we just don't have speedy trials. So, uh, it seems unlikely to me, if I were the Republicans, that I would allow a candidate 
to be nominated that could potentially not be able to run. Like, you know, if they nominate Donald Trump in, uh, when do they do the nominations? It's probably like somewhere around September, right? No, it's in um, the summer. In the summer, so call it when July. The conventions are. Yeah. Summer so they nominate him in July, and he gets convicted in, in October before the vote occurs. They're really screwed. But the people who are running against him are in the teens as far as popularity goes. Trump's in the 40s. Well, President Trump, you probably haven't seen this today, but uh, recent, I think, Emerson poll came out in the last 24 to 36 hours where his approval rating nationally is down around 36%, although it's still okay. high with Republicans, but even that has tended to, to fall uh, 56 or 57% of U.S. Uh, across the U.S. feel that he should be charged with something. But let's let's get to the article that you were talking about. Conservative case emerges to disqualify Trump for a role on January 6th. Again, we're not even looking at what would happen in Georgia under that case, which is actually broader. Uh, the two prominent conservative law professors, uh, members of the Federal Society, uh, William Bowd of the University of Chicago, Michael Stokes of Pulse, Michael Stokes Paulson of the University of St. Thomas, studied the question for more than a year and detailed their findings in a long article that will be published next year. So someone has an advanced copy in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review. According to Professor Bowd, when we started out, neither of us were sure what the answer was. People were talking about this provision of the Constitution. We thought, quote, we're constitutional scholars, and this is an important constitutional question. We ought to figure out what's really going on here. And the more we dug into it, the more we realized that we had something to add. He summarized, Donald Trump cannot be president, cannot run for president, cannot become president, cannot hold office unless two-thirds of Congress decides to grant him amnesty for his conduct on January 6th. The article says that there is abundant evidence that Mr. Trump engaged in insurrection involved by setting out to overturn the result of the 2020 federal presidential election, trying to alter vote counts by fraud and intimidation, encouraging bogus slates of competing electors, pressuring the vice president to violate the Constitution, calling for the march on the Capitol and remaining silent for the hours of the attack itself. The article continues, quote, it is unquestionably fair to say that Trump engaged in the January 6th insurrection through both his actions and inactions. We can go deeper into that, but let me give you a chance to, now that you've caught your breath, to respond. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I there is evidence, right? Like there wouldn't be uh, charges or anything like that. They wouldn't have been able to bring this if there's not evidence. Now, what do I think about that evidence? I don't know. I'm not an expert in this, but I think that they bring up a very interesting point is he can't hold that office. It says he can't run, but I don't know what that means, he can't run. Um, you know, I mean, he is running, <laughs> and he's winning. So maybe uh, by, maybe this, the voters' opinions will change by January. Maybe Trump's peaked. Well, well there's going <laughs> to be laws about putting someone that has been found... Um, in violation of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, uh, which is the, someone that has been found to 
um, to have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution of the United States or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, I'm pretty sure that within state laws that that person is prohibited from being on the ballot. I um, wonder, I mean, now you're talking about state laws in 50 states. Um, well, it doesn't have to be 50 to, you know, keep him from being... It has to be the first four, right? <laughs> yeah, the Electoral College, you, there's a certain amount will will make that effectively. Um, and, but any amnesty has to be voted on uh, by two-thirds, faded, voted favorably on by two-thirds of both the House and the Senate. Uh, right, and here, I mean, here, here, no matter what you think about this, this professor, no matter what anybody thinks about well, this, this is more cogent. Uh, professor Calabrese uh, says that Trump is ineligible to be on the ballot, and each of the 50 state secretaries of states has an obligation to print ballots without his name on them, adding they may be sued for refusing to do so. So even then, there's going to be probably further legal action unless Trump just folds his cards and, you know, cuts a deal or something. I, I'm, I'm, I think it's, very, it's a very interesting time in American politics, and I continue to uh, keep an eye on things. The, whether you think these charges are specious or not, it is beginning to look like Trump is checkmated. You know, I think he could win the Republican nomination without these charges. And I thus think he could beat... With or without these charges? Without. Without these charges, he could win the Republican nomination. What about with? But, well, I don't... I, mean, I think that the charges make it so it's illegal for him to be on the ballot in no, some states. No, no. I mean, the, the primaries are going to happen before this is resolved. The charges, not the results of the charges. He's charged. Mm -hmm. And the Republican, uh, you know, apparatus, I don't think is going to let him get nominated. I don't think that the st there's some states who will let him be on the ballot, from what you've just said. Um, and thus, I don't think he can get the nomination. But I think if he did get the nomination, and like we were just the absence of these charges, he'd have a very good chance of retaking the office. But with these charges... I think he's checkmated. Well, I don't think that it's going to go to trial until after the first of the year. Yep. I may be wrong on that, but I think, and there has been, as we said earlier in the broadcast, that uh, the magistrate in Washington, D.C. has said if he didn't stop his social media uh, posts, that he was going to uh, risk having the, the trial moved up. But I think right now it's scheduled for March of 2024, which means it could be possibly completed, and then you still have the appeal process, et cetera. But um, unless the appeals are favorable, and we don't know the appeals would be um, even decided before secretaries of state start the, the process of, put, of assembling the ballot. Um, Right, so it's not going to, I mean, there's just no way for this to happen. It's likely he's going to be on the ballot in, in some primaries. Uh, fine, um, but I don't think that that's going to be enough to make a difference. It has to be uh, New Hampshire, excuse me, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, 
than Super Tuesday. Like, there's no, there's no path to victory if you don't have, if you haven't done anything inside of those states. Right. Well, I, I think he, that he could have. That's going to happen in the springtime. The trial I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's going to make a difference. I think the Republicans are going to come out and say, Hey, ladies and gentlemen, um, we all love Don, the, you know, the big, the big Don here. But, um, the reality is, is we can't nominate him. So. Well, who's to say that? Who's to say that? Who's the, who's the president of the Republican National Convention? Well, you mean. It used the, to be that yeah, the Republican National Committee? Yeah, the committee, oh, sorry. The RNC. Uh, yep. that is somebody that he helped get appointed. Or elected. Yeah, well. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I somebody has to come to their senses here. I, I think that if if any person that's a, a congressperson or a senator or a governor, if any elected official that's a Republican comes out and says he shouldn't be allowed, unless in their calculus they think it helps their individual electoral career, they're not going to say it. And there's a strong possibility with the hardcore Republican electorate that anyone that does say that will find themselves facing a primary challenger in the Republican primary or whatever the election is that they're trying to, you know, gain their seat or retain their seat. Um, you know, they could very well. I just, you know, <laughs> I mean... Do the Republicans want to be put in this uh, position? And the Democrats are in a crappy position too, right? Like they've got uh, some guy who's, uh, you know, it's either the White House or, an, or, or the old folks' home, one of the two. And I, I don't, I mean, it's, it's just weird. Yes, it is. So now what do you th think of the, the evidence so far? Have you had a chance to look at that? There seems to be a paper trail to me. I think that they've put uh, the, in the January 6th thing that they've got enough, um, you know, things lined up to get an indictment. And they did. Um, however, I would say that in the long run, I don't think we're talking about I think he can beat this stuff on appeal. Um, you know, they'll find enough people in the uh, whatever district of New York or, um, you know, Washington, D.C. or wherever they bring these things. You know, these these prosecutors know what they're doing um, to be able to get what they want to get. What they want is to keep Donald Trump from running, and they're going to be successful at that. I think they want to punish Donald Trump for trying a coup d'etat on the United States of America. Why didn't they bring charges sooner? Why'd they wait until because the they election? they had to go through the process. What we found, besides the Eastman memo from the Department of Justice that was part of the conspiracy, they're finding more documentation of people that were writing and their participation. So we, one of the, in Georgia... Now, we only had the five co-conspirators uh, in the federal case. In the Georgia case, we have the 18 co-defendants. And one of these, besides John Eastman, was one of the, is one of the defendants. 
with also a man named Kenneth Cheesebro, or Cheesybro, depending on how he pronounces his name. Uh, he actually also participated in uh, doc documenting and putting a paper trail to the plan. Uh, and he was part, wrote on how to uh, marshal supporters of President Trump to pose as electors in the states won by Joe Biden, some of the states won by Joe Biden, and create a pretext for Michael Pence to delay counting the electoral college votes. What this, this conspiracy, alleged conspiracy, aimed to do, they, there were multi-parts. We had a certain number of states that they were going to challenge the slate of electors. So in, their, in the electoral college, you know, when Florida votes for the president, they're voting for a slate of electors for the electors, electoral college. And then the secretary of state in the individual states um, certifies the electors and they participate in the electoral college vote directly. We vote for the electors. The electors vote in the electoral college for president. Right. Um, and actually, you can go back to, I think, Rutherford P. Hayes is when a, a similar uh, challenge was, was uh, brought forward, but that never got as far as this did. All right. So we've got multiple states where there are alternate electors, false electors, uh, some people would say. The people that were proposing this said, oh, you know, actually, I don't even know how they could say they, they were uh, not false electors because the, the secretary of states of these individual uh, states didn't have a role in creating the, the second electoral slate. These are states where this, the secretaries of states actually certified the electors that were elected. Uh, anyway, uh, Cheese Row was among the 19 people charged. The 98-page indictment in, for the Atlanta area prosecutors uh, said he had a strategy for disrupting and delaying the joint session of Congress on January 6th. He faces seven felony charges, conspiracy to commit forgery, conspiracy to file false documents, violation of the Anti-Rocketeering Act, mailing organized crime theme. He's also has, is in the, one of the co-conspirator five in the federal case. Um, the, he, he has also written similar to Eastman that if they could have these other slates of electors and give Michael Pence a reason not to go through with certifying the vote in Congress, that is why they wanted to have the rally on January 6th. That is why there was a, a effort to get to the Capitol to disrupt the process. And there's also the, these uh, conversations, and, or rather uh, as an email and other uh, texting and things like that, not just hearsay. There's actual, the communications are actually uh, obtained through the investigative process that this is what they wanted to do. That's why Mike Pence uh, had his personal attorney, not his personal uh, attorney, but his personal attorney in the vice president's office, uh, evaluate these theories and come back with the idea that, you know, this isn't possible. You can't do this. Um, right. I mean, that seems pretty clear that uh, you would have the 
I mean, like, the rally could very well have been to encourage Pence to do what is legal, right, and just. Um, but they, you know, obviously, what President things Trump went farther. What's that? What President Trump thought. And what, evidently, some of the, the, the Secret Service were uh, aiding him in doing by having him protected at the, um, the rally. And then some put a thought to it when they wouldn't let him walk with the um, marchers on the Capitol as he had planned to. There were, according to Giuliani, there was a plan for Trump to be on the floor of Congress looking strong. With all these mm-hmm. people around him, yeah, I, I, to me, that doesn't sound like an insurrection. Um, but you know, things went uh, went differently. I'd, I'd point out that the only people who were killed were killed by government agents, um, and, and the, so you know, I mean, it, it's a crappy insurrection where where at, no government at, officials at the, get at killed. At that moment in time. The only person shot was the person in there trying to illegally come through a broken window and was warned to stop. But, you know, you're not surprised when the, someone who's assigned to be guard Congress, when they're hearing hang Mike Pence, hang Nancy Pelosi, is going to fire on a, someone breaking into the room where they're secured. When you say the room, do you mean the people's house? There no, the I people mean, breaking into the people's house. in from the crowd that was attacking the Capitol. I'm just saying the founding fathers would find this insurrection to be rather uh, weak sauce. When they were willing to, you know, sit out there in Valley Forge and run bayonets through their government. What was uh, necessary to do? What was necessary to do was to disrupt the procedure and not let it continue, which is what the goal was, even if the person coming through the window didn't know that. But I think many people knew that. And I think that, that Mike Pence definitely knew that, which is why he didn't trust the Secret Service to get in the car in the basement and allow him to be taken away from the danger and why he stayed there to make sure the process didn't get disrupted. Yeah, well, I think that, uh, um, you know, Mike, uh, that, that uh, Donald Trump's whole thing hinged on Mike Pence, and that's why he's so mad at Mike Pence. Well, that we are in agreement on. So, anyway, we'll be looking at the cheese bro and how he comes out of all this, Eastman among the others. Uh, You know, Rudy Giuliani didn't do himself any other favors when he tried a legal maneuver on the uh, federal case, saying that he knew the, in so many words, saying that he knew that his allegations about the... um, problem with the individual elections uh, were false when he alleged them. Uh, I, that was just a, a maneuver he tried, but it's, that's a, a maneuver of desperation to say that, to try and get himself out of that other stuff. I think everybody's going to be rolling on everybody else. I think Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, who is, he's not a co-conspirator on the federal case, which makes you think that he rolled over on the other people because he was <laughs> a party to most of those conversations that were going on. And I think it's only a matter of time before he rolls on, rolls over in the Georgia case because he's not going to like getting the mugshot and getting the arraignment 
done. It doesn't seem likely that Trump's going to be able to pardon all of these people, that he's going to be in the position to pardon all these people in the yeah. future. No, it doesn't look like that at all. It, uh, I mean, you know, the voters seem to be somewhat um, unimpressed with the Chris Christie-Mike Pence combo ticket. Although Chris that, Christie uh, we, has moved ahead of Ron DeSantis in the latest New Hampshire polling. Oh, I haven't seen that. He's up to a, like a whopping 9%. The, the more amazing thing is the the drop that Ron DeSantis has had. New Hampshire has yes, looked at him and they don't like him. I, uh, I think that uh, drops should be referred to as meteoric when they uh, happen quickly. I, I don't understand what a meteoric rise is because meteors don't rise. I mean, I suppose sometimes you'll see a shooting star move towards the center of the sky as opposed to away from it, but it doesn't make any sense. Yes, in the midst of space, which way up is rise? All right. Well, well I'm not on space. That, I'm on Earth. Important questions like that and much more will come up in the, the final hour, for this week anyway, of Reigns and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. Network. Rains and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network. I'm Henry Rains. I'm Mark Edge. For another third hour, what can we ever find to talk about in all this time? Well, it helps to be... <laughs> I'm sure we'll find plenty. It helps that we're based in the... Well, you're based elsewhere. But I'm based in the center of the universe. And that's the center of the Christian nationalism universe. And that is the hope, at least, of... Former General Michael Flynn, former National Security for something, Security Advisor for President Trump for something like 17 days or 16 days, or <laughs> a, a, a presidential blink of the eye, if you will. But he's been able to keep busy promoting Christian nationalism going. Last year was the big push year for it, and he got a lot of coverage both in being able to travel around the country and speak to a lot of groups that were receptive to him. Also, a, uh, PBS Frontline did a documentary about him, and towards the latter part of the hour-long documentary, the last 15, 20 minutes of it, they focused on Sarasota. We have a place here called The Hollow, which is where aspiring Christian nationalists, aspiring Proud Boys, uh, aspiring Patriot Front people, they go and there's those FBI ring. agents. What? FBI agents? Oh, there might be some of those there, but they don't. I just figure that the uh, I, I just figure the Patriot Front and the Proud Boys those are just fronts for the well, FBI. Well, they don't wear the FBI T-shirts if they are there. And well, they and rarely do they. It's also supposedly a great spot for weddings. This the Hollow down in Venice, Florida. I they I have, have no idea what. What you're talking about, to be honest. Well, that's okay. And I live. It's a wonderful. My mom place. lives there too. It's a special place where you can send your child to be isolated, uh, not not forever, just for for lessons, lessons of patriotism, and uh, they they will teach children as young as six year olds um, to handle weaponry, you know, guns and their their range, shooting range there. 
And Good old days in public school. Uh, you know, gun safety is important. But did you have uh, any kind of did you have any kind of shooting clubs when you were in school? You were in no, I, I don't school remember. in the sixties. But I, I remember walking up our down down our streets in grammar school with our carrying our BB guns and stuff. Um, yeah, I did that in the eighties. I remember when they cleared the the field at the end of the the dead end street that I lived on to they were going to actually it was going to be for just a farm of all places and now it's a retirement village but back at that time when we were much less densely populated it was just going to be a farm in the middle of Bradenton um and the as the tractors were mowing down the the field there were some good old boys and young good old boys, as in like teenagers and 20-somethings, riding around in the back of a pickup behind the, the tractor. They weren't part of the tractor uh, uh, contractor to do this, but they just took it upon themselves to go out with their pickup and their guns, and from the back of the moving pickup, they would try and shoot the rabbits that would come running out of the uh, field where the tractor was mowing through and this was less than a hundred yards from homes so <laughs> i've needed some instruction on gun safety but i don't think they would have listened but anyway well, I, I can that. tell you that uh just earlier this year um some people were less than a hundred yards from they're they're authorized to be there by the manatee county government the government you're talking about to be uh shooting ducks near the autobond island in the sarasota bay and, um, you know, that's fine, too. So it's not like uh, guns aren't getting used within 100 yards of uh, residential areas in Manatee County this year. Okay. Well. But it's a good story. I, I, it was less than 100 yards from the grammar school kids that were out there with their <laughs> bow and arrows trying to hit the, the rabbits that didn't get hit by the, the gunshot. <laughs> Good old day. Sounds like fun time had by all. As Michael Flynn would tell you about when he was telling you about Christian nationalism, I think one of his big money lines in his speeches are, one nation under God, right? So there must be one religion over the nation. I don't, I don't think that was ever printed on the, uh, anything in the Constitution, but. Yeah, that's, that's taking even the, uh, the revisionist history, uh, one step further. Um, I don't know when One Nation Under God was added in any of these circumstances. The Pledge of Allegiance is, um, wasn't really a, even, even adopted until the 20th century. Um, 19th so, century, I believe. Yeah. And the guy who wrote it, by the way, um, National Socialist. Uh, the original salute to it is uh, this thing that looks like a, a Nazi salute. Um, you know, instead of hand over your heart. It's all very, very interesting. But our founding fathers, some of them, like uh, Thomas Jefferson, was a deist. He wouldn't even be considered a Christian uh, by you know himself. He rewrote the New Testament and took out all the miracles. Um, you know, like uh, no, I don't think that uh, that was the idea. Plus, I do think that God can transcend a religion. So personally, I believe, and it seems like I'm backed up by some level of history, that the God of Israel the God of the Jews, the God of the Christians, and wait for it, 
the God of Muhammad are all the same guy, the same person, the same entity, whatever you all wish to say. part of the Judeo-Christian Abrahamic tradition. Right. And I'll even go farther as to say that, uh, you know, in my belief system, God is all of the gods that uh, everybody believes in. But, you know. Well, well we're, hey. we're, we're going to get into a little digression, but this is something that just came up. Um, church I go to also has a podcast where they talk a little bit about the sermon. And by most, by, uh, by fundamentalist standards, and they're not a fundamentalist church. They're, they're the opposite. Um, they, but fundamentalists would think it's a, uh, a, a they, their Christianity is heresy. But they, they openly talk about what you don't know and what, you know, and all the, the different theories that have come out about different parts of the Bible. The, uh, the one, uh, the, the founding pastor, has a, a doctorate from a, a Christian university, but then he went and got his doctorate from Florida State University too. So he knows ancient uh, Greek, ancient Hebrew. He also um, German from the period of the Refora- Reformation. He's read the original documents. The yeah, um, you want to be able to read that Geneva Bible um, besides just the King uh, James. Well, and then the uh, pastor that just joined a couple years ago, who is sort of like because. Because the founding pastor's my age, the, the, the other pastor's in his 40s, so I think he's sort of being, uh, it's a bad word to say groomed these days, but sort of groomed to take <laughs> over. And on the podcast, and tell me how, we're, we're totally digressing here. Um, they, they were talking about the, the story of Adam and Eve, and the, the 40-something pastor said, you know, in English translations of the Bible, it almost always says that the serpent tempted him with the tree of knowledge, which would give them the power to know the difference between good and evil. Knowledge of right. good and evil. Right, and it's he, the fruit of the tree the, of the knowledge of good and evil. The pastor said that he has a, a rabbi friend who is a scholar of ancient Hebrew, and he says that's a poor translation, that the real translation of that because they already knew what was right and wrong, because they knew it was wrong to go in the garden. That the, the tree. what, what the, the real translation should read is that the fruit would give you the power to decide what is good and evil, which makes that story a whole lot different. Um, you, any thoughts? Yeah, that's interesting. I'm going to have to spend a lot of time thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like the difference between a story about rebellious children. And a story about children that want to seize power for themselves. But we'll, uh, yep, fascinating we'll, we'll stuff. revisit that sometime. But <laughs> well, maybe we'll get him. I guess to come what I would say the, the show and tell us about it. <laughs> Great. All right. So, Christian nationalism. Who's for it, Michael <laughs> Flynn? He, he was, but. He couldn't help himself. Well, let's let's define it before we go any further. Christian nationalism. What what do you well, think that means? I've heard it used, and it just sounds to me like the people that claim for themselves Christianity separating themselves from somebody else. Go ahead. Yeah, that, that's a good place to start. 
But I've also read in people that have done greater research than me that when they talk to people in the new Christian nationalist movement, they many of them say that, well, they don't have a, a relationship with Christ. Okay, well, that's something. Then others say they're not even really following the teachings of Jesus. And others say they're not even sure about the divinity of, of Christ. What they are, they call themselves, are cultural Christians. So now that's... I've used this term for a long time. I've I've used that term for over a decade to describe myself as a cultural Christian. It gives you a big open door to define the the others, the non-Christian nationalists, and the non-cultural Christians by yours. You can make a... you You can draw your circle around your people... And you can keep a lot of people outside the circle when when you do it that way. But Michael well, Flynn had perhaps. A- I mean, when I do it is is that I you know what I'm trying to do is separate myself from every kooky idea that anybody who's called themselves a Christian has uh, you know had heretofore. Um, you know, I don't want to because you know, that Christian word means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, and. That's why I say, well, look, you know, when I think about Christianity, I think about monotheism. That's generally where I'm at. I think about a God that, uh, you know, rewards goodness and or has created a universe that rewards goodness and punishes evil. Um, at least I hope so. It seems like the politicians get away with a lot, though. Um, you know, I, I don't know what they mean when they say this uh, Christian nationalism, but I kind of feel like I know who they are. To me, Christianity and nationalism are two different things. If you're a Christian, you're hunting for the kingdom of God. If you're a nationalist, you're hunting for the kingdom of lying, cheating politicians that will kill on a whim if it benefits them. And those aren't the same thing. No. Well... And you might also be, when you're talking about Christian nationalism, be talking about someone who would say that they blame Jews for their own deportations to Auschwitz concentration camp. And he would well, also suggest... Been different to Martin Luther, Martin Luther, the uh, guy who founded uh, Protestantism, was famously pretty uh, anti-Semitic in his talk. So anti-Semitism and uh, modern Christianity are, aren't exactly... Uh, uh, separated. Please go ahead. Well, Michael Flynn, the former Trump advisor, also suggested that mothers were complice- complicit in handing over their young children to go on trains to Auschwitz. Now, Auschwitz- well, if you believe that, like some people in the government believe that the United States tax system is voluntary, and if you believe that, then you would say handing over your baby to a um, brown shirt is voluntary. Just saying. Maybe, maybe we should actually look at what we're talking about than looking for imaginary people that would say handing over your baby to brown shirts or. No, no, I'm talking about the real people that say that. Uh, I don't, I don't have quotes technology. from them, Voluntary. but I do have quotes from Michael Flynn, and I have actual audio from Michael Flynn. It, it's the same audio that the Auschwitz Museum slammed him for. In a recent speech, Michael Flynn, the Christian nationalist, suggested mothers were were complicit in handing over their young children to go on trains to Auschwitz. Uh, Any mother who would be told, give me your child, give me your baby, we're going to separate, we're just 
not going to put you in a club coach car. We're going to stuff you like a sardine into a train. There weren't any guards. They were doing it voluntarily. Well, Michael Flynn has a lot to say. Let's start with how he set this all up, because I don't know who we're at war with, but Michael Flynn says we're at war. And, and the leadership needs to get ready for war. We are in the valley. America is in the valley of the shadow of death. And, and so this is biblical. This is biblical. All of you pastors, ministers, imams, rabbis, if there's any priests in here, you are supposed to be leaders. Okay? You are supposed to be leaders. Probably a surprise to the rabbis and the imams that they were supposed to be biblical leaders. But we'll let Michael Flynn fill that in for him when he speaks to them directly. Um, one Parts of the Bible, anyway. Make the church I'm talking about probably a little heretical to uh, some other churches. Is that they say a lot of people get in the trap of worshiping a book as opposed to worshiping God. And I find that to be the biggest problem with modern Christianity is yeah. that somehow that, uh, you know, a book as trans, the translation of a translation of a translation is held aloft as the unerring word of God, every dot and tittle. And that somehow God has stopped speaking at, uh, at the end of the first century or the beginning of the first century. This doesn't make any sense to me. Well, also in this last Sunday sermon, the third pastor, the one that only has the master's degree, but knows ancient Greek, uh, actually did his own translation of three verses from the Bible for part of the, the sermon, which made me think when they announced that, well, thank you, Pastor Brett, for doing this translation. I thought, oh, my gosh, they're going to be coming with the pitchforks and tiki lamps. After this one. But Michael Flynn, we're in the valley of death. Uh, so, that was another thing. I, I actually um, asked the uh, the founding pastor's son this week. I said, what do you think about the, the fact that there's a church that's this um, outside the, the fundamentalist scope? And you've got some another person trying that, that this was founded here. And they're also trying to found uh, Sarasota as the capital of Christian nationalism. He goes, well, I wasn't even aware of it until you told me about it. So <laughs> a lot of things below the radar around here. But Michael Flynn, so we're in the Valley of Death. you got to be a leader. What else does Michael Flynn have to say about this? As a commander, as a leader of, of uh, military formations from every single level, up from from platoon of, of, uh, of 30 to an organization of 20,000. You know, it gets harder and harder the higher you go up to be able to get out in front of the whole organization and embrace them and give them a big hug and say, I love you, I'm a, we're about to go to war, okay? Or we're going to go train for war. And right now, we're at war. We are at war. We're at war with that, what Jason laid out to you. We're at war with a justice system. We are at war with a justice system. 
And, you know, and I joke sometimes and I go, is there any FBI agents in here? You know, leave now. But, you know, this it's and I, I like, you know, I want to have a life. Oh, we're at war. He referenced somebody that I, at a politician, I think he's speaking in an elected uh, rally or something like that. Maybe not. Um, we're we're at a war, but I, against them, them. You know, I mean, I heard Justice Department maybe and FBI maybe, but, how, but somehow he brings us all back to the Auschwitz, and here he goes getting started on that. Well, what's the old internet rule? If you the first person to bring up the uh, uh, Hitler wins loses or whatever. Well, I don't think he ever made it. Now it doesn't seem to be that way. Well, come on. Close enough. It's the Holocaust. But any any mother who would be told, give me your child. Okay, give me your child. Your baby. And we're going to separate you. And we're going to, we're not just going to put you into a, you know, club coach car, right, where there's buffet service. We're going to stuff you like a sardine into a train. And early on, they really didn't know. They thought that they were being taken out of war zones to be taken care of. And then it, wasn't, it didn't take long before the word got out because people started to escape. Some great stories about it. And they started to realize, hey, they're actually taking you there and they're, they're doing some really sick things. Okay, so now he's starting to get on this history of you know, they first they didn't know where they were going, then they didn't know where they're going, and then they they were like going, they were going, and then give me your babies. Where does that come, Michael? But I'm thinking to myself because I asked, I asked the guy, the the very very astute historian that was walking myself and a couple others through. I'm I'm asking him, so tell me what were the rules for the guards? Because there wasn't many guards. But there were thousands, thousands of people. Maybe they're members of your congregation. Maybe it's you. That, that just said, okay, here's my child, and get on the train. Talk about being in the valley of the shadow of death. Now, that's in the 30s, in the 1930s. That's not even 100 years ago. So there were no guards. This is that amazing. Where does he get that? Well, I think he's trying to say there's few guards. Um, well, I, th- this is what I would say to that is, is that um, prisons around the world have far, far, far fewer guards than they have prisoners. Maybe that's what he's trying to get across in this ran- rambling uh, sermon? Well, maybe, but the guards probably had guns. And I don't think the, sure. the Jewish people that were rounded up were allowed to bring their guns with them. Well, just remember this, everybody, when they start asking you to give up your guns, because the first thing they did was ask people to give up their guns. Well, certain people. (laughs) Does it make a difference if it's uh, all or some? It makes a difference to the person who has the gun. (laughs) Well, um, the... Those that are in uh, in power, the group that is the in-group, rarely cares whether or not they have guns. It's They care about whether the other groups, the out-groups, have guns. All right. Well, that's the last word for this segment. We'll wrap it up on the other side 
of these messages. You're listening to Brains and Edge. Rains and Edge on the Free Talk Live Network here as we wrap up today. I'm Henry Rains. I'm Mark Edge. And we have covered a lot of ground today. We were just finishing up with Michael Flynn and his comments about Auschwitz and the lack of guards to make the Jewish people get on the train and Jewish mothers just handing their babies over. Uh, We need to say that uh, the Auschwitz Museum, <laughs> that, that, that's not the case. Um, the idea that uh, there weren't any guards, that it would have been just easy to, to uh, ignore that. Um, well, I've heard um, uh, like some musings uh, as to what would have happened had the Jews and, you know, first off, not gone to the ghetto, but what, what, what had happened if the Jews had met have this not uh, violence? That was well before the Nazi Germany. Right. Uh, that was before Nazi Germany? Polish ghettos and stuff like that. There were ghettos all over around Europe, and they would lock up the Jewish people in those neighborhoods at night with chains. Not, not individual chains on the people, but the neighborhoods would be chained. Yeah, I can't say, I, I can't speak to it, but my understanding was is that, uh, uh, you know, that Jews were forced into neighborhoods first, and then, you know, everything else happened. But um, part of one of the first things that happened was the guns were taken. What if they had met these uh, government restrictions with guns, is what some musings have been. And I do wonder to myself, you know, it's the... The, uh, for, the the foresight of, of history, as it were, um, the the ability to look in, uh, backwards and say, oh, well, this is what was going to happen. Because nobody who gave up their gun knew they were going to be thrown onto trains and gassed and all the other things that happened. Well, they, well before the trains and all that, you had Kristallnacht with the riots that broke down the Jewish businesses and ransacked right. homes and things like that. So there's a lot of things. And, and, you know, in Russia, you had the Jewish pogroms that, you know, persecuted them. I mean, that, that's, that's been well, part of... Pogroms the, have been around. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition. Well, that was just a mental health issue. <laughs> no, really. Come on. Those were just like mental health counselors. You, you, you obviously had ideas that were contrary to what the, the church said. And it was obvious that the church was right, so you just needed some help seeing what was true. Yep, and if, uh, if that help came in the form of torture, so be it. But everybody knew that the, the earth was flat, and your crazy ideas about the earth being round and traveling around the sun, you know, we, they did, hadn't invented Xanax, so they had to do something to help you get your mind right. Hi. Torture. Last thing, I've said it, I've told Mark on the, the, in between these segments that I just wanted to wrap up Michael Flynn and he just drags me right back out into the wilderness. 
Uh, I'm like, Mark, Mark, make straight the way for for Reigns and Edge to finish this segment up with Michael Flynn and get on to talk to some other things. But I do want to pin out that this is not Michael Flynn's first time going down this road. Uh, in the 2016 Hillary Clinton presidential campaign, a manager suggested that Russians were behind the leak of thousands of Democratic National Committee emails. Not saying I get behind that statement, but in his response, I definitely don't think this was a, a wise deflection of that claim. Flint suggested that the Jews were blaming Russia to hide their own role in the leak. He tweeted, quote, the USSR is to blame, not any more Jews, not any more. He later said the tweet was a mistake and added his sincerest apologies for pointing the finger like that. So I'm sure he's just a misunderstood, you know, young man that's grown up. I don't think I even understand what, what's been uh, claimed here, but all right. By me or by him? Well... I'm just, I guess by you. I'm just saying, I'm just What's the problem? It's um, like saying that, that the Russians did it, not the Jews. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, that was the Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign manager claimed that. And then his first part of the tweet with an exclamation point. Well, who are the, the Jews? Star is to blame. He's saying like sarcastically. And then... Not anymore. Not anymore. Don't try and tell us that. Anyway. All right. Let's get out of that. Who are the Jews? Yeah, I think he's deflecting the blame to the Jewish people. Not the Jewish people. Are we talking about Israelis? The Jewish elite that run everything that people like Michael Flynn like to talk about. Michael Flynn, here's his own history. All right. Well... You know, you had a conversation with me, and maybe we'll get a chance to, I think we have a chance to revisit this, about the FDA and your, um, you know, you're, you're very skeptical of the FDA, to say the least. Correct? I'm know. skeptical of any organization that works in part of the federal government, yeah. Okay, well, they were at the center of a, uh, a U.S. Court of Appeals Fifth Circuit this week. In fact, just like, uh, I believe, a day or two ago, this ruling came down. And the Fifth Circuit ruled that several decisions the FDA took to make uh, mifepristone, I probably stumbled over that pronunciation, obviously, uh, more broadly. It's just a made-up word anyway. What? These pharmaceutical words are crazy. They're just a bunch of made-up noises anyway. Abortion pill medicine were broadly available and were illegal. The ruling is... Is this an abortion pill or is this a pregnancy prevention pill? Because there's some, you know, but let's let's try and get through the ruling. The ruling is paused from taking effect until the Supreme Court makes a decision about the case. So they know obviously this case is going to go to the Supreme Court for a final decision. There's probably either contrary appeals court decision coming or already been made. Mifepristone, I think I said it better that time, is used in combination with another drug called misoprostol, and it's the most common method to terminate a pregnancy in the U.S. Uh, Currently, it's used up to 70 days into the pregnancy. A federal appeals court... 70 days. 
Pardon me? 70 days. Yes. That's, you know, after that, I don't think it is safe and effective. Um, okay. The Federal Appeals Court on Wednesday imposed restrictions on the abortion pill, though the ruling, just the one medicine, the mifeprestone, though the ruling will not have an immediate effect. The U.S. Court of Appeals ruled that the several decisions the Food and Drug Administration took to make mifepristone more broadly available to women did not take safety concerns into account. And as we said, the ruling is paused for now. Now, what that what they're actually saying, though, Mark, this is where the, the logic gets really sketchy, in my opinion, it, it, because it isn't like this was a new decision. The decision was 20 years ago. And these uh, attorney generals in uh, Republican-led states that are very anti-abortion have brought this to the appeals, well, through the court system, and it's made it to the appeals court. So what they're saying is that there's these new laws that these states have passed, and in the what the, the new laws say is that women would no longer be able to obtain the abortion pill through telemedicine appointments and by mail. Patients would have to receive a prescription from a doctor and have three follow-up appointments in person, not by telemedicine. Uh, The restrictions would also shorten their time period when women can take the pill to 49 days into their pregnancy down from 70 days. So here you have a decision that was made by the FDA 20 years ago and for 20 years, women have been taking this pill, and there hasn't been widespread ill health effects from the pill. You'd in think fact, we'd know in 20 years. It's the most common way of terminating a pregnancy in the first 70 days. So and it doesn't seem like legislative action, you know, um, legislative action is necessary on this either. It's like, um, it, it seems thinly, a thinly veiled attack on... Uh, abortion that they otherwise cannot control. Well, well exactly. But but look at this. You the you have the legislators saying that the what well, the state attorney generals representing the legislator saying that the FDA made a, a poor decision based on the safety of the pill approving it too easily, but yet you have the legislatures making the medical decision that talking to a doctor through telemedicine like we do on so many things these days, serious illnesses, is not safe enough and that you have to see a doctor in person and you have the three follow-up visit, which can't be by telemedicine either. Now, the fact that... It's certainly not safe for the baby. (laughs) A prescription from a doctor, well, that's what the telemedicine is. They're getting a prescription from a doctor. So... That just right there flies. Well, I, so the I think that there's some drugs. Go ahead. There's some drugs you can't use telemedicine for. I suspect uh, drugs like heroin or, excuse me, uh, opiates and things like that. So it's not like there's no basis for it. But after 20 years of use, we would know whether this drug was no, dangerous that's enough not, that's for the not mother. Not for the- because the, the heroin is a restricted judge. It's a drug, rather. There's already federal regulations that make, that classify that. What is it? Class three or class one? I forget which. But 
you know, I don't know what the there, there's a, a logic to that, and you can't do those. Uh, you can't ship those across state lines either. So the point that, that I would make is is that uh, prescription. The the point that I would make is is that this is nothing but a doctor's um, that. The legislators are using the doctor's union um, that should not exist anyway against them. I don't, the vast majority of drugs shouldn't require a prescription. Um, you know, it's, I, I'm willing to concede heroin if we're going to, uh, you know, if we, if we need it to, uh, to go the other direction. But I mean, I'm here in Honduras and I can buy most of the drugs that Americans can buy with, um, with a prescription. I can drive, buy them without because it's not dangerous, and it never was. It's just a unionized, it's just unionized bullcrap, making people spend more money to get prescriptions. This drug, and frankly 90% of them, should be available to people to buy at a pharmacy without prescription. Okay, so, and please help me get this back on what we were talking about. <laughs> um, you know, this is a thinly veiled uh, this is a thinly veiled attempt to prevent uh, mothers from being able to use the wonders of modern medicine, a la telemedicine, to be able to get drugs that they want and need. If we are going to allow people to abort, then let, let's just go ahead and go after the main, you know, chop the root. What's that? These states don't want to allow that. I know they don't, and so, but, so but they should be honest. That the FDA made it uh, uh, 20 years ago, made an improper decision. So they, they as non-doctors, are going to make the decision. They should just go after abortion and take the, the, the shots on their own career rather than, uh, you know, hacking at the branches, in my opinion. Well... Anyway, the, one of the judges wrote that in loosening uh, mifepristone safety restrictions, FDA failed to address several important concerns. So Judge Jennifer Walker Elrod took the point that the FDA uh, failed. It failed to consider the cumulative effect of removing several important safeguards at the same time, regardless of the 20 years, 23 years now that have passed. Um, anyway, and but the dissenting opinion... Judge James Ho, when he was joined by another judge, argued the appeals court should have rolled back the FDA's original approval of Pristone and removed the medication from the entire U.S. market, not just the states in question. Well, that's interesting that this uh, guy, this uh, you know, has no power or particular training that we can tell, uh, just has decided that uh, the FDA has erred in this particular area. Right. American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists criticized the decision as judicial activism and said it's demonstrably safe and effective. Uh, well, well, it's not safe for the baby. <laughs> well, when I get an abortion, I demand a dead baby. Uh, I think we would argue even the definition of a baby that. 49 days. All right. 70 days. You can argue if you want. Is, is the fetus, and barely a fetus, is an embryo, really. Uh, and part of you should go argue with these guys. This sounds like they want to dance around the, uh, you know, the definitions of things. Go, go have fun with them. 
Well, while we're dancing around the definitions of outcomes of sexual activity, uh, <laughs> another cause that has gained traction is getting rid of sex education, which will surely cut down on the number of abortions. Um, <laughs> so the mom well, liberty, not content with the efforts they've made to get the groomers a.k.a. teachers out of the schools, or to get the pornography out of libraries, want to get sex education restricted. Now, I want to point out, because we may not come back to this, when they first passed the, uh, I will admit, poorly euphemized, uh, not euthanized, but euphemized, don't say gay bill in Florida. You know, they said it was just for age appropriate that would only be up to third grades, that some of these um, uh, gay education, uh, oh, that's the wrong word, wrong euphemism, not educating to be gay, but educating about gay issues and uh, homosexual activity and things like, the fact that there's a diversity, the LGBTQ uh, aspects of the spectrum of sexual diversity wouldn't be appropriate for people up to third grade, which is where a lot of people got on and was like, well, you know, you may have a point there. Well, once they passed it, though, then the Florida did it all the way up to 18 in in high school. So they, they got their foot in the door on the third graders, and then they say, well, no, let's, let's not talk about it at all. So we, when some of these things that I'm going to say in the Monster Liberty saying, we just want to tweak this a little bit. Although they don't say use the word tweak, they 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 talk about it. Monster Liberty held its annual summit in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Some include a, a session called Comprehensive Sex Education, Sex Ed, or Sexualization, and it was led by conservative education activist Kelly Shinkowski, who, by the way, I I don't want to read verbatim here all the way down. Her qualifications is she's an English major. Um. She has no experience. She is a home educator, but she has no uh, sex ed background as far as her uh, education, uh, her, her activism, or her ability to speak as authority on education. Anyway, one as of a, a graduate of the Manatee County school system, um, I will say that I got very little myself. I mean, I understood really? the reproductive system as it worked. And we got some little uh, gelatinous uh, testicles that we could fish around for for testicular cancer. And that was about it. That's more than I got. Well, well there were no I did it about 15 years after. Testicles in our health education class. I don't know if they found uh, testicular cancer by the time you uh, got out of high school. Well, <laughs> maybe those testicles are still floating around uh, Manatee County. Anyway, Kelly Shinkowski said that she strongly objected to the concept of consent being included in sex education. Consent okay. that, that people, well, let me just go on because we're going to run out of time here. Charity's teaching kids about consent is counterproductive and leaves children vulnerable to sexual exploitation. Kids are often taught to be obedient, and to teach kids consent is a shift away from really strong teaching 
And it's okay to have those really strong boundaries and to say no, because not always do kids have the faculty to strongly say no. So isn't the idea of consent the idea of saying no? Uh, the ability to say no. I would say that this is everything that every public school advocate and teacher deserves. Is is that if you're going to advocate for public school, you're advocating for the average parent to have their opinion, um, and that that's a problem. If you met ha- the average people, just remember half of them are dumber than that. Um, so no, I mean don't don't send your kids to public school. This is the problem. There you go. Yes. Where is everybody going to send their kids? Just to like a neighborhood school? Are we talking about in, in one fell swoop? Anyway. My guess is, is that there's a much larger percentage of Americans not sending their kids to public school post-COVID than there was before. All right. Uh, Kelly continued, teaching kids activities on how to consent to sexual acts when the laws in that state may prevent them from consenting to some of these things. And we know the laws keep kids from having sex. It's benefited <laughs> they know and to have those boundaries. Um, uh, she also ha- goes on to and say, uh, sex ed should only include, highlighted the days when sex ed only included safety prevention, birth control options, and how to prevent sexually transmitted infections and viruses. She criticizes comprehensive sex ed. I don't think it should be that. I think it should be reproduction only. This is how the reproductive system works. You don't think figured out from their kid taught how sexual diseases are transmitted, how to prevent well, that. I mean, that doesn't sound like biology to me. That sounds like some kind of medical instruction. Oh, Mark. And then she also wants has a problem with a lot of programs because they don't recognize LGBTQ people and relationships. Uh, as without treating them as abnormal. So she wants those people to be brought out in the curriculum as abnormal. Burn them! Burn the witch! <laughs> uh, the idea is very much to get a, remove or get away from that concept. Uh, she also complains that they're teaching critical race theory in sex ed. It's all interconnected <laughs> and integrated. And they're teaching social-emotional learning as well in sex ed. And that sex ed, uh, social-emotional learning, this isn't her words, this is a side note, is focuses on developing critical thinking, emotional management, conflict resolution, decision-making, and teamwork. Well, that's where Moms for Liberty are. And we haven't even gotten to the last topic that I said we were talking about, and that is African-American uh, or black history being removed from uh, Arkansas schools as an AP course. That will no longer happen, too, following the uh, Florida model as far as removing that for AP. Well, I don't think Florida removed it. They just uh, wanted to, they, the, the claim was is that they wanted to make sure the curriculum was fair or something like that. They didn't think that it uh, met the Florida legal standards, is what they said. Ladies and gentlemen, if you think the government's efficient, by all means, allow it to educate your kids. If you don't, then why in the world would you do such a thing? Anyway, as I see, the Florida did ban that, that 
curriculum from the high schools. Okay. Well, ultimately, um, no, wasn't it the national whatever organization? I thought that was the, the college board is the college board people that develop the AP curriculum courses that allow uh, students to get college credit for passing the exams. Right. And they wouldn't bow in some way. And so the state and they went head to head and, you know, whatever happened, happened. Uh, well, Mark, we've got another week in the can. Maybe that's the wrong, uh, wrong euphemism. Also, oh, it used to be the right another, one. <laughs> another week's show in the can. Except it's not in the can. It's in the little digital files that we have stored away somewhere. Yeah. You wouldn't even some some imaginary folder. Mark, I will talk to you next week, and I'm sure there will be more important news for us to, to discuss. Have a good week, Mark. Always fun. If you want to move to the free state and you're looking for some real estate, well, I know a guy who's really great. It's the Realtor Mark Warden. Now you can learn more about the awesome things happening here in New Hampshire in our march toward liberty in our lifetime. Our friends at Porcupine Real Estate are hosting a series of webinars to educate you on the expanded freedoms enjoyed by New Hampshire citizens. Reserve your seat today at move.freetalklive.com. Topics include gun freedom, medical freedom, and political freedom victories. They also have a couple on best practices for moving to the free state and finding housing. These webinars are super helpful and free to attend once you've registered at move.freetalklive.com. Visit their YouTube channel, Porcupine Real Estate, for videos from past presentations and sign up for upcoming webinars for free at move.freetalklive.com. Porcupineralestate.com